0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit Kuiper.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy. The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Essays on Politics, Religion and Social Order by Stephen C. Perks Copyright 2016, Stephen C. Perks The Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England Section 1. Politics and Religion the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, meaning city. The term polis originally referred to a fortified place of refuge, but came to mean, quote, the ruling political centre of a given district or the territory ruled therefrom, end quote. The Greek states were small city-states, originally founded on a religious worship. According to Fustel de Coulanges, quote, with the ancients, a city was never formed by degrees, with the slow increase of the number of men and houses. They founded a city at once, all entire in a day, but the elements of the city needed to be ready first, and this was the most difficult and ordinarily the largest work. As soon as the families, the fratries, and the tribes had agreed to unite and have the same worship, they immediately founded the city as a sanctuary for this common worship, and thus the foundation of a city was always a religious act. End quote. Furthermore, quote, we must not picture to ourselves the city of these ancient ages as an agglomeration of men living mingled together within the enclosure of the same walls. In the earliest times, the city was hardly the place of habitation, it was the sanctuary where the gods of the community were, it was the fortress which defended them, and which their presence sanctified, it was the centre of the association the residence of the king and the priests, the place where justice was administered. But the people did not live there. For several generations yet, men continued to live outside the city in isolated families that divided the soil among them. Each of these families occupied its canton, where it had its domestic sanctuary and where it formed, under the authority of its pater, an indivisible group. Then, on certain days, if the interests of the city or the obligations of the common worship called, the chiefs of these families repaired to the city and assembled around the king, either to deliberate or to assist at a sacrifice. If it was a question of war, each of these chiefs arrived, followed by his family and servants, sualmanos. they were grouped by fratries or curies and formed the army of the city under the command of its king, end quote, When the state grew to embrace a larger area, the term polis also embraced this wider area, hence the term had primarily a political sense. The polis is the political centre, as opposed to the town in a geographical sense. Towns that were subordinate to the polis were not cities in this political sense. The concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English defines politics as the art and science of governments. End quote. It is not pragmatism or quote, the art of the possible, end quote as Otto von Bismarck famously claimed. Politics deals with how society should be governed. What, then, is the relationship between politics and Christianity? Does Christianity have anything to do with politics? The correct answer to this question is that Christianity has a great deal to do with politics. Indeed, that the Christian religion is, by its very nature, a political faith. It is not merely that Christianity has a political dimension. Rather, in its purest form, that is, when it appears unmixed with the compromising effects of syncretism with false religions and idolatrous spiritualities that are alien to its own principles, the Christian faith is essentially political in nature. Christianity is the true politics, and this is because the church, the Christian community, is the true society, just as the kingdom of God is the true social order, in the sense that all societies that turn away from the covenant social order established by God's word are idolatrous, the abandonment of God's true purpose for mankind, and therefore the corruption and defacing of what humanity and human society were meant to be in the divinely ordained order of creation. Rebellion against God and rejection of the covenant social order revealed in its law is a move from life to death, from the true meaning of man's life to a false meaning for life, from the true humanity to human corruption and depravity, from true society to social dysfunctionality and disintegration with all the consequences that such apostasy entails. If the history of the human race has taught us anything, it is surely this, since, as Scripture declares, quote, He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Quote. Proverbs 8.36 In relation to the Christian religion, the term politics can be used in two senses, in a general sense and in a more specific sense. Christianity is inevitably political in both these senses. We shall look first at politics as a general category for understanding the Christian faith. Section 2. Politics as a General Category for Understanding the Christian Faith Most of the Greek city-states of classical antiquity aspired to, and at various times established, some form of democratic rule, that is, government of the state by the quote, people, unquote, the free citizens. The Greek word for people in this sense was demos, from which we derive the English word democracy. In classical Greek, the term demos, quote, denotes the people as organised into a body politic, end quote, as opposed to the laos, which refers to the unorganised people at large. Demos, is a political term. The assembly of the demos, for political purposes, was called the Ekklesia. For example, in Athens, the Ekklesia was the assembly of the demos at which all the officers of state not chosen by lot were elected. The Ekklesia, therefore, was from the 5th century BC onwards in Athens and most Greek city-states the assembly of the demos, the people constituted as a political body. It is the Greek word ecclesia that the New Testament uses to refer to the assembly or congregation of believers, and therefore that the Holy Spirit has chosen to denote the nature of the body of Christ, and which has usually, but quite erroneously, been translated in most English versions of the Bible as church. It is imperative, especially in the modern world, which is so much under the mesmerizing sway of post-enlightenment secular humanist idolatry of political power the Christians recognize the significance of this fact. In using the term ecclesia to denote the assembly of the body of Christ, the society of the faithful, the Holy Spirit has given us an intensely political term. The body of Christ is a political body. She is the ecclesia, the congregation of the free men of the New Jerusalem. For those with ears to hear, this fact thunders out from the pages of Scripture, only to be smothered and buried by centuries of mistranslation and the irrelevant spiritualizing of God's Word, which has rendered the modern church's mission in the political sphere of life virtually useless. The result has been that, instead of discipling the nations to Christ as he commanded in the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 the modern church, has been reduced to cleaning up secular humanism, accepting and compromising with its principles and practices, conforming to its institutional norms and way of life, content only with cleaning its collars and cuffs and presenting it as something it is not. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not come into this world to provide secular humanism with a laundry service. He came to claim the kingdoms of this world for himself as his rightful inheritance. Psalm two to 9 And he commissioned his church to disciple the nations. The church will not have fulfilled her mission, nor will she enter her rest and therefore will not see the end of her tribulation, Acts 14.22 Until it can be said that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The word ecclesia is not a cultic term, that is, a term denoting the meeting of a group of people united by their devotion to a particular deity and the maintenance and promotion of his cultus. Ecclesia is a thoroughly political term, denoting the assembly or congregation of those who are members of a body politic. To be a member of the Christian ecclesia, therefore, means to be called out of the world of unbelief and sin and into a new political community with its own social order, the kingdom of God. There were many words available to denote cultic groups in classical Greek culture and literature, which the authors of the New Testament could have used to identify the church primarily as a cultic group, devoted to maintaining the cult of Jesus. And indeed, pagan writers did use such words to describe the church. Even Eusebius refers to Christians as theasetai, that is, members of a theasos, a pagan religious term, but the Bible, written by man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not use such words of the Church. It does not identify the Church as a mystery cult. According to A. D. Knock, an inquisitive non-believer in the ancient Roman world who gained access to a Christian assembly, expecting to find some kind of mystery cult, would have been disappointed. He would have heard, says Knock, scriptural readings little wearisome, perhaps, by reason of their length, an exhortation like those of the synagogue, and his impression here also may well have been that this was of the nature of a philosophical school. If he was able to stay for the central ceremony, he would have difficulty in recognising it as cultus in any ordinary sense. The officiates did not use a fixed form of words, followed, as in Roman prayers, through fear that the supernatural powers invoked would not give what was desired if one's syllable or gesture was varied, Furthermore, in the context of the Greco-Roman world in which the Christian gospel was first proclaimed outside Judea, the worship of Christ as an object of personal devotion was not prohibited. At the time of the Caesars, the ancient Roman laws prohibiting the worship of foreign gods were no longer strictly enforced, having been subverted by the many foreign mystery cults that were popular in Rome. The Romans, who were religiously inclined, says Augustus Neander, attributed their sovereignty of the world to this policy of conciliating the gods of every nation. Even without the limits of their own country, individuals of these nations were allowed the free exercise of their opinions, and hence Rome, into which there was a constant influx of strangers from all quarters of the world, became the seat of every description of religion, Charles Norris Cochrane refers to the easy toleration which was normally accorded to unlicensed cults by the Roman authorities. Consequently, devotion to Christ and the maintenance of his cultus was not in itself considered a problem in ancient Rome at the beginning of the Christian era. All the gods found their place in Roman culture. Jesus was not an exception. At one point, The Emperor Tiberius had even proposed to the Senate that Jesus be consecrated as a Roman god. Hadrian is said to have built temples in Christ's honour, and Alexander Severus had in his private chapel statues of Christ and Abraham. Even the apostate Emperor Julian was prepared to accept the Jehovah of Judaism into the pantheon of his syncretistic religion. He also recalled the banished Christian clergy and insisted on equal toleration for the Jews and all Christian sects. The worship of Jesus as the deity of a devotional mystery cult posed no threat to Rome. But this is not how the Bible proclaims Christ, nor was it how the early church proclaimed Christ. Rome rejected Christianity, not because it rejected the worship of Christ as a God, but rather because Christianity represented a rival political order to the Roman Empire. The Romans perceived the Christian faith as a political threat to Rome and the proclamation of Christ as Lord as a political offence, not a religious offence in a narrow sense. Had Christianity been merely one more cult among the many mystery cults that existed in Rome, there would have been no problem. But Christianity is not a mystery cult. The Christian Church, that is, the body of Christ, is an ecclesia, a political body that acknowledges one king as lord over all, whose law is to be obeyed by all, and who tolerates no rivals. To worship Christ merely as the object of some devotional cultus is a denial of his lordship. The point for Rome was simply this. Either Caesar is lord or Christ is lord. As long as Caesar was acknowledged as Lord, Christians were permitted to worship Jesus as the object of their personal devotion. In other words, they were permitted to practice their faith as a Christian mystery cult, that is, as a personal salvation cult. But their politics had to be the politics of Rome, and it was submission to this political principle that was symbolized by emperor worship. As Stuart Perone pointed out, quote, Whereas for the Christian, politics must always be the servant of religion, for the pagan, it is the other way around. Religion must serve the ends of policy, and that is the fundamental cause of the opposition of Christian and pagan polities. It was no different for Rome. The function of Roman religion in the age of the emperors was political, that is, to act as social cement and to support the state. Referring to the official cults authorised by the Roman College of Pontiffs, C.N. Cochrane writes quote, In authority and purpose, in the various techniques of propitiation and augury which they employ in their ritual of purification and appeasement, their one and only object is to maintain the peace of the gods, Pax Deorum. And for this, literally anything will serve as long as it is felt to be politically expedient, even though, as with certain importations from the Orient, and may be found necessary to emasculate or quarantine the cult, lest it should pollute the native atmosphere. But to say this is to suggest that the spirit of official religion was utterly pragmatic. Accordingly, it becomes purely irrelevant to inquire into its substantial truth or falsehood. Formally speaking, a question of this kind simply does not arise. It is only by appreciating these facts that we can possibly understand how intelligent and high-minded citizens like Cicero or the Emperor Augustus himself could have given any countenance to practices which, as they perfectly well knew, were sheer and unmitigated humbug, justifying themselves on the ground that these were material to the preservation of social order. End quote. Accordingly, Seneca quote, attacked superstition but recommended the worship of the political gods both as quote, a matter of form unquote, and as expedient. Quote, for the binding of the masses to civil society. Augustus Neander observed that Ideas of the universal rights of man, of universal religious freedom and liberty of conscience, were altogether foreign to the views of the ancient world, nor could it well be otherwise, for with them the idea of the state was the highest idea of ethics, the end and realization of the supreme good. Consequently, the development of whatever else is good or an object of human desire, was made dependent on this. And so, even the religious element was subordinated to the political. They knew of none but state religions and national gods. It was Christianity that first of all, and alone, substituted more enlarged views for this narrow principle of antiquity. Instead of national deities and the paramount obligation of political ties, it taught men to worship the one god Of all human, and to see in all men alike the common image of that one God, while, in the place of the state as the centre of human interest, it substituted an universal kingdom of God, embracing and superior to all human polities. Looked at from this point of view, which was the only one actually taken by the ancient world, a defection from the religion of the state could not appear otherwise than as a crime against the state. Neander goes on to point out that quote, all this especially applies to the ancient Roman world with its exclusive political principle which engrossed every other interest. Quote. The great adversary of Christ, indeed the great Antichrist in the early centuries of the Church's history, was the state, as conceived by classical antiquity, not the worship of pagan gods. In his study of Christianity and classical culture, C.N. Cochrane refers to, quote, the Aristotelian doctrine that man is an animal whose potentialities can be realized only in the polis, end quote, and goes on to argue that Aristotle, quote, fully agrees with Plato in his supposing that the individual substance possesses significance only, so to speak, as the carrier of the type. Furthermore, that while everything else in him belongs to the ephemeral world of generation and decay, The typical alone is permanent, essential and intelligible. Finally, that for the realization of this permanent, essential and intelligent part of his being, what it requires is to live in the polis. Moreover, for Aristotle the polis constitutes a response to the specifically human demand for a specifically human order, in the sense it may properly be described as natural but its naturalness is in no sense that of a spontaneous growth. On the contrary, it is that of an institution designed within limits conditioned by the potentialities of the material to secure mankind from accident or spontaneity, thereby making possible the attainment of its proper end. From this standpoint, the order embodied in the polis is profoundly unhistorical, what it promises, indeed, is immunity from the flux, which is all that idealism discerns in the mere movement. And this is the reason why, according to Aristotle, quote, the man who first invented the state was the greatest of benefactors. End quote. In other words, the state is man's saviour. It is that in which man lives and moves and has his being. Quote, if we call to mind, said Fustel de Coulanges, that among the Greeks the state was an absolute power and that no individual right was of any value against it, we can understand what an immense interest every man had, even the most humble, in possessing political rights, that is to say, in making a part of the government, the collective sovereignty being so important that a man could be nothing unless he was part of this sovereign. His security and dignity depended upon this, end quote. The state, therefore, defines man, who is effectively conceived as being made in the image of the state. Similarly, Joseph Leckler writes that in Aristotle's Politics, the state is quote, presented as a natural product of human evolution deriving from the life of the family and then from that of the village, as a quote, perfect society unquote, based on natural law without any aid from revelation. End quote. By contrast, in the biblical perspective, The state is not the natural product of the evolution of human society, but rather an institution established by divine mandate to mitigate specific evil effects of the abnormal condition prevailing as a result of man's fall into sin. For the Christian, God is the one in whom man lives and moves and has his being, Acts 17.28, the one in whose image mankind is made, and therefore the one who defines mankind. In the ancient world, this spirit of Antichrist achieved its most potent manifestation in the cult of the Roman emperors. Speaking of the early church, Christopher Dawson said that The Christian regarded the official worship of the emperor as a supreme act of blasphemy, the deification of material power and the setting up of the creature in place of the creator. So long as the empire confined itself to its secular function as the guardian of peace and order, the Church was ready to recognise it as a representative of God, but, as soon as it claimed an exclusive allegiance and attempted to dominate the souls as well as the bodies of its subjects, the Church condemned it as a representative of Antichrist. Thus the denunciations of the Apocalypse are as integral a part of the Christian attitude to the Empire as St. Paul's doctrine of loyal submission. To St. John, the official cultus of the Emperor, as organised in the province of Asia, is the worship of the beast, and Rome herself, the dea Roma of the state religion, is the great harlot enthroned upon the blood of the martyrs. Sacrificing to the emperor, that is, the burning of incense on an altar before an image of the emperor, was an act of political compliance. By the time of Claudius, it had become, says Eddy Nock, an outward sign of loyalty that involved little sentiment. Christians were not required to believe in the divinity of the emperor, they required merely to observe the right outwardly, thereby acknowledging the political supremacy of Christ. Neither the people nor the emperors themselves, with the exception of those that were mad, actually believed that the emperors were gods. Augustus laughed at the idea and Vespasian mocked the prospect of his apotheosis on his deathbed. Quote, Accordingly, many of the magistrates who felt no personal antipathy to Christianity urged the Christians who were brought before them to comply, at least outwardly, with what the laws required, that is, to observe the religious ceremonies prescribed by the state and explain to them that the state concerned itself only with the outward act and that consequently, so long as these were performed, it would leave them free to believe and worship in their hearts whatever they chose. End quote. Rome did not have a problem with people worshipping Jesus as an object of personal devotion. The mystery cults were well established in Rome at the time of the persecutions. The practice of the Christian faith, as merely one more mystery cult among many, posed no threat to Rome. The problem was with the idea that someone or something other than Rome itself, as symbolised and embodied in the Roman Emperor, should have a prior political claim. On anyone's allegiance. The real battle that the early church faced was not between Christ and any of the pagan gods and religions, but rather between Christ and Caesar, both of whom claimed divine authority and sovereignty over the same world. This was a political battle. As Ethelbert Stauffer explains, quote, Such then was the inner state of the people of the Roman world. What was the truth? Reason of state must decide what was valid and invalid, what was to be said and not said, what was faith. Everyone had ceased to believe in the gods or the mysteries. All that was left was belief in the emperor. Nor was even that taken seriously in the end. No one believed anything. The veneer of piety masked an absence of all belief. Was the Christian far wrong when he said that the gospel in the Roman world was the witness to the truth in a world full of semblance and lies and self-deceit. To speak of deceit was no cheap Christian reproach, but deceit was, in fact, the fatal sickness of the worship of the emperor, known by all, acknowledged by none. Quote. In other words, observing the cult of the emperor was a form of what we should perhaps today call, quote, political correctness, End quote. The political culture of ancient Rome, idolatry of political power justified by deceit, quote, spin, end quote, offers a striking comparison with the political idolatry that characterises modern Western culture, though the latter exists in a more consistently secularised form. The materialism of ancient Rome also offers comparison with modern Western culture. Nonetheless, the conflict between Rome and Christianity was primarily a political conflict. Quote, it is indeed true, wrote C.N. Cochrane, that Christianity never preached or advocated the forcible overthrow of the Roman order. Nonetheless, it regarded that order as doomed to extinction by reason of its inherent deficiencies, and it confidently anticipated the period of its dissolution as a prelude to the establishment of the earthly sovereignty of Christ. Christianity was a political problem for Rome. The idea that the conflict between Rome and Christianity was a religious conflict in the narrow sense of the term, that is, a conflict caused by the refusal of Christians to worship the pagan gods, is false. Francis Legg stated the real nature of the conflict between Rome and Christianity. Quote, the picture of, quote, Diana or Christ, representing a young woman called upon by a sympathetic Roman magistrate, to choose between sacrificing to the statue of the many-breasted Artemis of Ephesus and condemnation to death as a Christian attained great popularity in its day and shows with fair clearness the view of the relations between paganism and early Christianity, supposed at the end of the last, that is, 19th century, to have been current in the first. Yet, hardly anything could give a falser idea of the religious history of the period. The officials of the Roman Empire in time of persecution sought to force the Christians to sacrifice, not to any of the heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome. And at all times the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but as a political offence. For the rest, the worship of the Olympian gods had, when Christianity came to the surface, almost entirely died out, and both Greek and Latin writers witnessed to the contempt with which it was regarded by both races at the beginning of our era. End quote. Nevertheless, the emperors continued to use the old religion for political purposes. Quote, in the Principate, it is true, the old belief in the gods was encouraged by Augustus and his successors on political grounds, but the philosophers shrugged their shoulders at the superstition of the people who worshipped the grave of Zeus in Crete or recounted tales of heroes playing dice with the gods in the underworld and bringing back a golden towel as a souvenir. And when Christians were offended by such stories of the gods, the philosopher Celsus smilingly explained that nobody really believed these things anymore, and for that very reason, people should not be asked to believe their stories about Christ. It was the end of the old religion of the gods, which ceased to be taken seriously. End quote. Christopher Dawson makes the same point. Quote, the religious elements in ancient culture, which had been the inspiration of civic patriotism in the 5th and 6th centuries BC, had almost disappeared from the cosmopolitan civilization of the Imperial Age. The temples and the gods remained, but they had lost their spiritual significance and had become little more than an occasion for civic ceremonial. Indeed, Dawson described the Roman Empire as the quote, greatest experiment in secular civilization that the world had ever seen. End quote. and goes on to point out that, quote, it is a mistake to suppose that the age of the empire was a religious one because it was marked by so many new religious movements. The mystery religions and the tendency towards mysticism and asceticism are a proof of the religious bankruptcy of society which drove the religious minded to seek spiritual life outside the life of the city and of society in an esoteric ideal of individual salvation. Even Stoicism, the one sect of the time which inculcated a disinterested ideal of social duty, was fundamentally an unsocial and individualistic creed. The reigning culture had become almost completely secularized, and the religious and the social instincts were becoming opposed to each other. Moreover, as Efebert Stouffer makes clear, The Roman authorities were fundamentally tolerant in religious matters. Every people of the empire could have its own beliefs and every individual could strive for salvation in his own way. No religious community was suppressed so long as it fell in with public order. Only the worship of the emperor was obligatory in all for it was grounded in imperial law and the Roman authorities permitted no laxity in matters of law. The worship of the emperor was therefore not fundamentally a matter of belief but one of public order and discipline, a duty for civilians and soldiers alike, an obligation of honour, which every loyal subject strove eagerly to fulfil. Dennis de Rougemont summed up the real nature of Roman society. Man no longer drew his unique dignity from some indestructible essence, but from the personage which he had become in the city, now that the city was supported by the edifice of the law and of the institution's, duly set in a hierarchy. Social Puritanism, a morality of service of the state, is what made the grandeur of the empire and its subjects poverty of spirit. If dissociation permanently hung over the Greek city-state, it was collectivist sclerosis that brought about the fall of Rome. Christianity had to contend with no more than a civic religion which frustrated the hunger of the soul. End quote. The refusal of Christians to burn the incense was a political statement that Rome could not ignore without conceding everything in principle to the God of the Christians. Burning the incense was not something a Christian could do without conceding everything in principle to the Roman political idolatry that it symbolized. Refusal to burn the incense said everything, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. No sphere of life is beyond his jurisdiction and no area of life is religiously neutral. Consequently, as Dawson points out, quote, it was inevitable that Christianity should come into conflict with the pagan government and society. To the ordinary man, the Christian was an anti-social atheist, quote, an enemy of the human race, quote, who cut himself off from everything that made life worth living. To the authorities, he was a centre of passive disaffection a disloyal subject who would not take a share of the public service or pay homage to the emperor, end quote. Nor was the problem merely one of perception on Rome's part, that is, paranoia. According to Stauffer, quote, Christianity offered, in fact, the only open resistance in the whole empire to the cult of the emperor. This resistance movement became more and more dangerous through its alliance in the capital itself with the senators of the old school and through its penetration of the ruling classes, of the court itself, and even the imperial family. Quote. As we have seen, the word ecclesia is an intensely political term, not a cultic term. For Christians to claim that they are members of the ecclesia of another kingdom, with a divine king whose authority extends to all nations, and to whom all men must, and one day will, bow the knee... Was a great political offence to Rome. Worse, it was treason against Rome, because Christ was proclaimed as a superior Lord to Caesar, a king above the Roman Emperor, to whom Christians prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. This is made clear by the complaints lodged against Paul and Silas with the rulers of Thessalonica by the non believing Jews. These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King, one Jesus. End quote, Acts seventeen seven. Though malicious in intent, this was not a false claim. The Christians did proclaim another, and indeed a superior King. This is evident also in a church liturgy from the third century, which states, quote, "Almighty God, to Thee be the glory, the honor, the majesty, the adoration and worship." To thee and thy Son Jesus Christ, our Lord and God and King. End quote. To this, the congregation responded quote, It is worthy and meet. Christ is victor. Christ is king. Christ is Caesar. His is the glory for ever. Amen. End quote. Christians claim that Jesus is Lord, not the Roman Emperor. That Lordship comprehends everything, politics included. In the end, the only way to save Rome politically was for Caesar to bow the knee to Christ. The problem with the Christians from the perspective of Rome was not that they worshipped the wrong deity, but that they were traitors to Rome. That is, they espoused a rival political order to that of Rome. In this, the Romans were entirely correct. And nothing demonstrates this fact better than the use of the term "ecclesia" as the proper designation for the members of Christ's congregation. The church, as the covenant community of the Lord's people, is a political organism. This concept of the covenant community as a political body is confirmed by Scripture in other ways. The Christian community is described in Scripture as a nation, quote, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, 1 Peter 2.9. It would be easy given the familiarity of biblical language and imagery bequeathed to Western culture by 2,000 years of Christian history, to pass by this language without noticing anything of political significance in it. And indeed, this has usually been the case. But we must remember that this is a quotation from the Old Testament in which the people of Israel are described in the very same terms. Moses was commanded to speak these words to the children of Israel, Now, therefore... If ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. End quote. Exodus nineteen five to 6 According to Stouffer, there is a connection here with the word ecclesia. Quote, The church that calls itself ecclesia, means to be neither synagogue nor anti-synagogue nor yet para-synagogue, but the covenant community of the Messiah, seeing its roots back beyond the age of the formation of the synagogue in the very beginnings of Israel. She intends to revive the inheritance of the Mosaic covenant community and now at last brings its original purpose to its fulfillment, the hallowing of God's name. End quote. Moreover, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, Matthew 4.23, Mark one fourteen, and believers are heirs of this kingdom, indeed, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. Let us make sure, says V. H. Stanton, that we realise the extraordinarily prominent position which the subject of the kingdom of God occupies in the Gospels, more especially in the Synoptists. This is essential if we would form a true conception of the nature of Christianity. Descriptions of the characteristics of the kingdom, expositions of its laws, accounts of the way men were actually receiving it, forecasts of its future make up the whole central portion of the synoptic narrative, End quote. likewise, Herman Ritterbus says that quote, the Gospel by which the entire New Testament Kigamer is summarized luke four forty three eight one sixteen sixteen has the kingdom of God and its coming for its content it may be rightly said that the whole of the preaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles is concerned with the kingdom of God and that in Jesus Christ's proclamation of the kingdom we are face to face with the specific form of expression of the whole of his revelation of God. Quote. In short, quote, In our Lord's teaching, the kingdom of God is the representative and all-embracing summary of his distinctive mission. End quote. But, The long-established traditions of mysticism, pietism, and otherworldliness among Christians have exercised an almost blinding influence upon the Church's reading of Scripture at many points. And this has made it all too easy to forget that a kingdom is a political concept, not a cultic concept. To speak of the kingdom of God is to speak of a divine political order that stands in contrast to the politics of man. Christians throughout the world are not merely members of the various nations who worship the same God in their personal devotions. They constitute a nation in their own right, a distinctive people, called out of and separated from the kingdoms of the world, and born from above through faith in Christ into another kingdom, a kingdom with its own political order. The form of this political order is absolute monarchy, regardless of the particular forms of administration under which the monarch's sovereignty is delegated to his ministers in the different spheres of life, that is, family, church, state, the Christian nation is governed by an absolute monarch whose law is unchangeable, whose jurisdiction is unlimited, and whose will is final. His ministers or vicegerents who govern under his law in the various institutional aspects of the life of the nation may or may not be chosen by means of elections. Depending on the nature of the institution, for example, elections may be used in choosing elders Exodus eighteen twenty five, Deuteronomy one thirteen to fifteen, Acts fourteen twenty three, compare six three to six. But such elections have no place in the family. Nevertheless, those chosen by whatever means are bound absolutely to govern these institutions under the will of God as revealed in his law. This applies. Not only in the government of the church, but in the family and the state also. No Christian politician, chosen by whatever means or belonging to any particular political party, has any dispensation to serve any other Lord. In his work as politician, he owes an absolute and unswerving loyalty and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome recognised the inevitable conflict between Christ and Caesar that this fact created. So, did the early church. It is the modern church's failure to recognize the inevitable and exhaustive nature of this antithesis that has, in large measure, rendered the church so irrelevant and powerless in the modern world. We can put this another way by saying that the modern church has failed to recognize that all political thought and action is inevitably religious, and that since Christianity is a religion, it must of necessity have a distinctive view of political order. Had the early Christians been prepared to do what the modern church on the whole seems prepared to do, namely to restrict the worship of Christ to a personal salvation cult, which is what the various permitted mystery cults were, there would have been no conflict with Rome. But they were not prepared to do this. The conflict was a political conflict because it was a religious conflict it has been observed that in Rome, quote, the framework for the religious and family acts of piety was Rome itself, the central and most sacred community. Rome strictly controlled all rights of corporation, assembly, religious meetings, clubs and street gatherings and it brooked no possible rival to its centrality. One of the reasons for the later supremacy of the military bodies over Rome was the lack of any organised bodies within the state to provide a counterbalance to the two swollen bodies which became the rulers of the empire, the army and the abiding and growing civil service. The state alone could organise. Short of conspiracy, the citizen could not. On this ground alone, the highly organised Christian church was an offence and an affront to the state and an illegal organisation readily suspected of conspiracy. The early Christians proclaimed Christ as Lord not only with their words, but with their lives also, in the way they lived and organized themselves as a community. And in doing this, they were constituted a distinctive social and political order that was in direct and open conflict with the social and political order of Rome. Very early in her life, the church set up agencies to deal with every sphere of life. They had their own courts, schools, exchequers and hospitals, It was their faith that dominated every sphere of life. To have any area of life outside the lordship of Christ was considered idolatry. The reason behind the violent Roman persecutions of the 3rd century was not religious, but rather that, as the charge read, the Christian church was imperium in imperio, a sovereignty within a sovereignty, an absolute authority within the jurisdiction of another. It was because they were regarded as politically subversive that they had to be destroyed. End quote. Speaking of Celsus' opposition to Christianity, Edenoch observed that quote, both the Christians and their opponents came to think of themselves as a new people, and it is clear in the work of Celsus that his real aim was to persuade the Christians not to forget loyalty to the state and their devotion to this new state within the state. End quote. According to Alan Brent, The victory of early Christianity and its success in annihilating its pagan rival, both as a political and intellectual force, is the victory of a state within a state, an imperium in imperio, which both challenged the state itself and sought finally, and unsuccessfully, to replace it totally. We must recognize, therefore, first, that the kingdom of God, the body of Christ on earth, and the Christian Ecclesia, are political concepts, and second, that the realisation of these concepts in human life and society constitutes a distinctive form of political action. There is a sense, therefore, in which we can say that the kingdom of God is primarily a political order, and that the Christian faith is primarily a political faith. Politics for the Christian is not merely one aspect of life among others, but the whole of it. Christianity is about politics. Not only is it the case that for the Christian, politics in this general sense is the primary context of life, it is the case also for the non-believer. Life is primarily political, because politics is inevitably religious, and has, as its raison d'être, its entire rationale, the administration of the law of an ultimate authority, that is, a god in the totality of life. In this sense, therefore, we can say that Christianity is the only true politics. All other political ideologies are false, that is, idolatrous. There is only either obedient or disobedient politics in God's sight. The body of Christ as the polis, the city of God, whose demos, people, constitute the ecclesia, the body politic of the kingdom of God, is a political organism and all other political organisms, are apostate and in rebellion against God, their only rightful king, to whom the nations of the earth have been given as his rightful inheritance. Christianity is the true politics, the only true politics. Christianity is primarily a political order because it concerns the kingdom of God, which is the heart of the Christian gospel, and which we are commanded to put first above all else. Matthew 6.33 It is important at this point that we understand precisely what is being claimed here and what is not being claimed. First, it must be remembered that I am using the term politics here in a wide sense as a general category for understanding the Christian faith. I am not, at least at this point, referring to a particular form of civil government or to a particular form of the administration of public justice. Second, it has been claimed that Christianity is primarily a political faith because it concerns the kingdom of God, which is a political order because a kingdom is a political concept. However, it is clear from Scripture that the kingdom of God is not of this world. John 18.36 There is, therefore, a radical break, a discontinuity, an antithesis between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. Christ's authority and power are not of this world. In other words, he does not derive his authority and power from the political orders and empires of men. His authority comes from God. But this does not mean that his authority has no relation to the world of politics and the empires of men, that it does not address the political life of men and nations. It does. We are commanded to pray, quote, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Quote. Matthew 6.10 The source of Christ's authority and power is not in this world, but its object is the transformation of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of Christ. Psalm 2, Revelation 11.15 The Christian nation or kingdom is not just another political order among the many political orders that exist in the world. It stands out over and against these and is completely different in origin and nature. There is a complete antithesis between the two. Nevertheless, the theatre in which God's kingdom is to be manifested is the world of men and nations, not some vague otherworldly spiritual realm. It is the nations that are to be bought under the discipline of Christ by the preaching of the gospel, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20 There is a fundamental principle of secular humanist politics that demonstrates very clearly the nature of the antithesis that exists between the kingdoms of the world, or the politics of man, and the kingdom of Christ, that is, the politics of God. In the politics of man, human government takes priority over all else. Man becomes the measure of all things. Man is supreme. This supremacy must manifest itself in the form of human government over all spheres of life. This inevitably leads to totalitarianism and the denial of human freedom in the name of man, indeed, even in the name of the rights of man. Well, did Jesus say, quote, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Quote. John 8.36 There is no real freedom outside of Christ, only idolatry, and all idols are tyrants that enslave men and crush their spirits. This is no less the case with the modern ideology of democratic political power in which man rules himself according to his own law in the name of human rights. This kind of human autonomy from God, that is, proclamation of the rights of man, can only be achieved by denying the rights of God over all spheres of life. Such a proclamation of the rights of man, because it is a denial of the rights of God, is necessarily, in principle, also a denial of all the freedoms that God has given to men, and ultimately will inevitably produce a society that, in practice, denies these freedoms in the name of man as the captain of his own fate. This is a serious problem that we now have to face in Britain. Politics in modern Britain has become a relentless campaign to strip men of their legitimate freedom under God and replace it with state control over the whole of life in the name of human rights that are superficial and ineffective and virtually meaningless to the individual. The antithesis here reaches its zenith in the idolatry of secular humanism, which offers real men, or rather forces upon men, a new kind of salvation, a salvation in which the state, as the embodiment of man's own idea of himself as God, rules over every facet of human life and provides men with their rights and the solutions to all their problems. This is the state as God, the new Rome. Hegel even refers to the state as, quote, this actual God, end quote. The only difference between ancient Rome and the new Rome is the more consistently secularised form in which the new Rome is manifesting its tyranny, quote. Just as the church organised the faith during the medieval era in Europe, says Shlomo Sand, The national state regiments it in the modern era. The state sees itself as performing an eternal mission. It demands to be worshipped, has substituted strict civil registration for the religious sacraments of baptism and marriage, and regards those who question their national identity as traitors and heretics. This is a religion by which Western societies live today. And yet, the body of Christ, the Christian nation, Those who are subjects of the kingdom of God and who therefore belong to a different political order that claims their absolute loyalty must also live among this apostate and rebellious political order in which man usurps the place of God and whose chief idol, the secular state, is accorded all the attributes of divinity, although in a secularised form. How are the Christians to do this? How are the members of the ecclesia of God a rival political order, to live among the political orders of men that now dominate society? How are we to live in the antithesis, while both maintaining that antithesis and, at the same time, supplanting the political orders of man with the political order of God's kingdom, so that the latter triumphs over and vanquishes the former? 1 John 5.4 How are we to practice the politics of God amongst the political orders of men? The correct response to this question will involve us in a great deal of sacrifice. It cost many of the early Christians their lives. Unfortunately, the way that the modern church has dealt with this question on the whole has been either to deny the validity of the question and embrace pietistic withdrawal, or, as with liberalism, to deny the antithesis. Neither approach is correct. If we deny the antithesis or the validity of the question, the result will be that we shall engage in the politics of man instead of the politics of God. This may be self-conscious or unself-conscious, but it will be inevitable. There is no third way of politics for the Christian. There is only the politics of God and the politics of man. Either we engage in the politics of God or we succumb to the politics of man. What is the difference? In what does the antithesis consist? Simply in this, that in the politics of man, the state, as the ultimate embodiment of human will, governs the life of the individual and the society to which he belongs, in terms of fallen man's own definition of right and wrong, good and evil, a definition that rejects God's word, God's law, as the touchstone of all truth at the outset, and replaces it with the pretended autonomy of human reason. In the politics of God, man looks to God as the source of all good and seeks to live in conformity with his will as it is revealed in Scripture. In the politics of man, the individual and society look to the state as the source of all good. The state provides for man's education, health care and welfare. It provides work, pensions, runs the economy, controls the raising of children in the home as well as outside the home. It is that in which man lives and moves, and has his being. The state is Lord. And, as Hegel explained, It must further be understood that all the worth which the human being possesses, all spiritual reality, he possesses only through the state. For truth is the unity of the universal and subjective will, and the universal is to be found in the state, its laws, its universal and rational arrangements. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth, in other words, the state is the incarnation of divinity, man's true God. Accordingly, Hegel tells us that, quote, man must therefore venerate the state as a secular deity. In the ancient world, this ideology of the state, Paulus as man's saviour, was sacralized in the figure of the divine human ruler, supremely in the cult of the Roman emperors. The Church rejected this whole political ideology and confessed Jesus Christ as God incarnate, the divine human saviour and ruler, that is, Lord, whose kingdom is everlasting and to whom all the kings of the earth must and one day will bow the knee, Caesar included. The New Testament writers, says Ethelbert Stauffer, radically rejected this apotheosis of human beings, particularly the cult of the emperors the rejection is expressed in three ways. First, they refuse the emperor any sort of divine honours or acclamation. None has the right to claim worship, save God and his Christ. Second, the rejection is seen in the names and titles of honour that are bestowed on Christ. Titles taken over from the old biblical tradition, and which had become a stable part of the Christology of the primitive church, found a new use as providing an antithesis to Hellenistic ideas. New Hellenistic names and formulae were also added to the church's vocabulary, names claimed for Christ alone, and making him a rival to the emperor. Third, and last, the church expressed its rejection of Hellenism in the far-reaching form of interpreting the ancient world's adoration of its heroes, its apotheosis of the emperor, and its expectation of a saviour in terms of its own theology of history, as prophecies and anticipations of Jesus Christ, and his saving work. End quote. The politics of God claims that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is, Saviour and Ruler, God incarnate, and that we are to look to him as the source of all good and govern our lives and society according to his law. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28, and the one whom we must worship. With the appearance of the modern godless and God-denying state on the stage of world history, therefore, we have the return of the ancient Antichrist in secular form, since, quote, Antichrist is the strongest world power in history. In him, all political power is concentrated. In Antichrist, there is the final revelation of creaturely sovereignty, end quote. And the secular state claims complete sovereignty over both the individual and society. In 1938, Eugen Rosenstock Hussey stated the problem in relation to Germany in the following way, Nobody can understand the German's exaltation of the state unless he knows that it is rooted in the depreciation of a visible church. Today, 400 years later, that is, after Luther's Reformation, the Hitler regime shows the reverse of the medal. His government commands more religious devotion than was ever asked by any pope or clergy. The balance between church and monarchy has been upset because the church has ceased to be real. For that reason, German Protestantism has become shallow. In the modern state, man incarnates his own will as sovereign over his world. In other words, man becomes, in the form of the secular state, his own God. Genesis 3, five. What are the consequences? The triumph of secular humanism has led to a complete shift in the way people in British society think, speak and live and it has also led to a complete shift in the way British society is governed. Under secular humanism, the control and regulation of life by the state will continue relentlessly. It has to, because this is the logic of the idolatry of man as his own god. This is why individual freedom is ultimately an obsolete concept for secular humanism. Even the terminology has now shifted decisively away from freedom to rights. This means that there has been a shift from the real, the tangible, the individual, to the abstract and the ideal, which must be embodied in some institution that has absolute control and authority. This move to the abstract is inevitable, because individual men disagree and dispute with each other, and their rights cannot be harmonized on an individual basis. Therefore the many, individuals, must always give way to the one the abstract idea of human will, which is embodied in the state. The one and the many cannot be reconciled on the basis of man as his own ultimate principle, man as God. The question, therefore, is this. Can the abstract, the ideal, as embodied in the state, guarantee the freedom of the individual? The answer is that it cannot. In enforcing the rights of one, it must negate the freedoms of another. The state therefore must rule as an absolute authority and suspend the liberty of the individual in principle. This is the only alternative to total anarchy for secular humanism. According to Ernst Nolte, quote, The word totalitarian, in a sense of laying full claim to an obligation on a human being, is applicable to every religion, every outlook on the world and on life, even the liberal, but only in the eyes of liberalism is this form really purely formal that is not ultimately concretizable, and hence Kant's categorical imperative is its classic formulation? It leaves religions free, tolerates them because it does not regard truth as demonstrable or personal freedom as definable. The only reason it is non totalitarian in the material sense and appears to abandon man to the mere whim of his moods is because, from a formal point of view, it is more totalitarian that is, more inexorable than other ideologies, end quote. But in the West, it appears now that the more liberalism has become disconnected from the Christian cultural matrix in which it originally developed, the less its totalitarianism has remained purely formal, and the more liberal regimes have sought to realize this totalitarianism in concrete social forms, and consequently, the less freedom the liberal political establishment is willing to grant Christians in the modern liberal societies of the West. Britain's increasing institutionalised apathy and even hostility to Christianity and the growing restriction of previously recognised fundamental freedoms stemming from its Christian past are testimony to this fact. It is precisely this trend that gives modern liberal Western states the character of totalitarianism similar to that of ancient Rome. Ultimate authority has to reside somewhere, and, if there is no God, then ultimate authority must belong to man. But such authority cannot belong to each man. Ultimate authority is therefore embodied in the state as the realisation of the abstract idea of human will, and the one, the state, takes precedence over the many individuals, thereby abridging the God-given liberty of the individual. The state, therefore, as Hegel tells us, is its own motive and absolute end. The highest duty of the individual over whom the state exercises a supreme right is to be a member of the state. The state is, quote, the objective spirit and the individual has his truth, real existence and ethical status only in being a member of it, end quote. This is where Great Britain is heading. The increasing control and regulation of life by the state is all part of the religious apostasy of the age, all parts of the politics of man. Slavery is the end product of the politics of man. It always has been, and it will be no different in the societies of the Western nations as they increasingly reject the Christian faith. The thin veneer of liberty that we still have in Western society is being relentlessly stripped away by the modern secular state. While under the old order, says Christopher Dawson, the state had recognised its limits as against a spiritual power and had only extended its claims over a part of human life, the modern state admitted no limitations and embraced the whole life of the individual citizen in its economic and military organisation. The consequences for mankind of this idolatry of political power by modern secular states has been immense from the reign of terror unleashed by the French Revolution to the mass murder programmes of national and international socialism. Leaving aside those killed by the two world wars, over 100 million people were murdered in the 20th century alone by secular states in pursuit of the religious ideals of secular humanism. This is a fairly conservative figure, though not the most conservative. Gil writing in 1972, estimated the total number of, quote, man-made deaths, unquote, in the 20th century up to that point, including both world wars, between 80 and 150 million, and assumed the mean figure of 110 million, with World War I accounting for 10 million, and World War Two accounting for about 40 million deaths. A more recent conservative estimate, again including both world wars, has put the total number killed by the state in the 20th century at 188 million, A less conservative estimate puts the figure at 231 million. According to Zheng Chan and John Holliday, the Chinese communist state alone was responsible for over 70 million peacetime deaths under the leadership of Mao Zedong. Alexander Solzhenitsyn claimed that a similar number perished in the Soviet Union. Commenting on state activity in the 20th century, Paul Johnson writes, The state has proved itself an insatiable spender an unrivaled waster. It has also proved itself the greatest killer of all time. By the late 1990s, state action had been responsible for the violent or unnatural deaths of some 135 million people during the century, more, perhaps, than it had succeeded in destroying during the whole of human history up to 1900. Its inhuman malevolence had more than kept pace with its growing size and expanding means. Likewise, Niall Ferguson states that the 100 years after 1900 were without question the bloodiest century in modern history, far more violent in relative as well as absolute terms than any previous era. The secular humanist state has been responsible for more deaths, both in war and as a result of the various secular humanist inquisitions and witch hunts carried out in the 20th century than any other form of religious establishment in history. In 1957, only halfway through the 20th century, Dennis de Rougemont stated that, The wars of this century killed more men than all the other wars of our history. Even the Marxist historian Eric Kobsman acknowledged that the 20th century was an era of religious wars, though the most militant and bloodthirsty of its religions were secular ideologies of 19th century vintage, such as socialism and nationalism, whose God equivalents were either abstractions or politicians venerated in the manner of divinities. The modern secular state has proved to be the most brutal and murderous form of political rule that the world has ever seen. Every idol, however exalted, says Aldous Huxley, turns out, in the long run, to be a Moloch hungry for human sacrifice. End quote. From the Christian perspective, things are very different. Christianity teaches that the Creator is one God in three persons. There is, therefore, no contradiction between the one and the many in the Godhead. God is a triunity. The one and the many are equally ultimate in the being of God. The one does not take precedence over the many and vice versa. Only in the triune nature of God's being can man find the answer to the conflict between liberty and authority that has plagued the politics of man throughout history. Without the triune God of the Christian faith, the politics of man is doomed to a never-ending conflict between the one and the many, authority and liberty. Only in Christ can man find true freedom, individual liberty, and at the same time the necessary legitimate authority to guarantee political order in society. Only in the politics of God is there an answer to this age-old conflict between political authority, the one, and individual liberty, the many. All other attempts to solve this conflict have failed, or are failing, with untold human suffering as a consequence. As the one in whom all authority and power in the created order is concentrated, the Lord Jesus Christ delegates his authority in a limited way to subordinate institutions. Church, state and family that have specific functions in his kingdom. No one, other than Christ himself and no subordinate institution possesses ultimate authority and power. Christ alone has all power and authority. Only the politics of God recognises the rights of God and the responsibilities of man towards God and its fellow creatures while at the same time guaranteeing the individual's true liberty under God and the necessary political authority to maintain order in society. Only by practising the politics of God can man reconcile individual freedom with political authority and thereby establish peace. Liberty and peace are the product of the politics of God. Quote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counsellor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it, with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even for ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. End quote. Isaiah nine, six and seven. We have become so familiar with these words in one way or another, that we miss their meaning. The government of the nations rests on Christ's shoulder, and all nations are under obligation to recognise this fact and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2. Those who refuse to do this and reject Christ's government have perished and will continue to perish. British society will be no different. The writing is already on the wall. 3. Politics as a specific form of social action we come now to the second sense in which I am using the term politics. In what has been said above, I have been referring to politics as a general, that is, all-embracing category for understanding human life. Politics in the specific sense refers to a particular form of social action in which men seek to establish and control the machinery of state as a means of ruling and influencing society. We have seen that, in the politics of man, the state becomes the object of man's apostate desire to control his own life independently of God. The state is made to function as an unlimited authority that replaces God in his providential government of the world. In other words, man idolises the state. Without God, man seeks to control his own destiny. The means he uses to do this is the state. The state itself is not an illegitimate institution; it is a god-ordained institution with a specific and limited role in society. But under the apostate political order of man, it takes on a greater meaning, that is to say, its role is expanded beyond its god-given function as a servant of God in the administration of public justice romans thirteen one to six and it is made to function as the central institution. By means of which man establishes his own kingdom independently of God, it becomes, as we have already seen, an idol, a god to which men look for their salvation. Quote, the historical role of civil power is changed into its opposite. From being a bulwark against Antichrist, it becomes the very fortress of Antichrist himself. End quote this is not a new development in human history. It happened repeatedly in the ancient world and, as we have already seen, was manifested supremely in the cults of the Roman Emperor, the biblical Antichrist. What is new in our age is the secularised form in which this development is taking place. But of course the Christian, as he engages in political action, may never look to the state in this way. Regardless of whether he belongs to a particular political party, he is under an absolute obligation to honour Christ first in all things and therefore he may not idolise the state in the way that the non-believer does nor engage in the politics of idolatry by compromising himself with the politics of man. In his politics, the Christian politician must manifest the antithesis that exists between the politics of God and the politics of man and his mission must always be to bring the political life of the nation into conformity with the politics of God, as revealed in Scripture. Just as the Christians in ancient Rome had to renounce the official worship of the state and the cult of the emperor, so too Christians today must renounce the political idolatries of the secular humanist establishment. The Christian politician, therefore, must acknowledge the ultimate political authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own duty as a servant of Christ in the political sphere. And he must acknowledge that only in Christ and the practice of the politics of God can man find peace. This means that he may not adopt the idolatrous political idea of the state that governs the politics of man. The answer to society's problems is not intervention by the state. It is always obedience to God which will sometimes mean that the state must take action, and probably more often it will mean that the state should do nothing. For the Christian, the goal of this specific political action must always be to bring the politics of man into conformity with the politics of God. Politics, in this sense, is, of course, a legitimate vocation governed by God's law. Therefore, there are some social problems that are rightfully solved by being referred to the civil government, the state. But the civil government must function within its own proper boundaries, as established by God's law, if it is to practice the politics of God. This needs to be borne in mind because the politics of man dominates our society. Christians can and do fall victim to the temptation to legitimise government action, even when this action falls outside the God-ordained boundaries of state competence. This error is the source of Christian socialism, which is a syncretistic religion, an accommodation to the politics of man by Christians that must be resisted and denounced by all who practice the politics of God. Section 4. Practicing the Politics of God What is the consequence of all this for national politics? How does being a Christian make a difference? What does it mean to practice the politics of God? Before answering this question, we must deal with what it does not mean. It does not mean that our duty as Christians who must engage in the politics of God is a matter of government lobbying. Christianity is not a political faith in a sense that it sees the answer to man's problems as action by the state. To understand the Christian faith as being political in this sense, would be to adopt the secular humanist agenda for politics. It is the politics of man that insists that the answer to the problems besetting society is government action, that is, control and regulation of society by the state. The Christian faith teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is man's saviour and he has given only a limited role to the state as a ministry of public justice. In our political action, we must acknowledge this by denying the idolatry of the state that constitutes the politics of man. Government intervention as an answer for the ills that blight our society has no place in the politics of God. Why? Because God has ordained other institutions to govern society as well as the state, namely the church, which has pastoral, cultic and secondary welfare responsibilities, and the family which has primary welfare, economic and educational responsibilities. Ultimate and absolute power is in the hands of Christ alone. He delegates his sovereignty in a limited and specific form to each of these institutions. No sphere or institution has total authority. The role of the states is the administration of public justice. Romans 13.1-6 it may not encroach on the legitimate sphere of authority of the other institutions without overturning God's revealed political order for society, that is, without engaging in parakbasis, an overstretching of itself that results in a corruption of its true calling under God. The answer to man's social problems, therefore, can never be totalitarianism, that is, government of all spheres of life by the state, Obedience to Christ in the political realm means that we must observe the boundaries, functions and authority of each of the institutions that God has ordained for the government of human society. Whilst the politics of man is essentially monist in this sense, that is, it absolutizes the state, the politics of God, that is, the Christian social order, is essentially pluralist in the sense that there is in society a plurality of institutions that govern different spheres of life, all of which hold their authority in a delegated form from Christ, their head. No one of these institutions takes precedence over the others. Each has a legitimate, delegated, but limited sovereignty that the others may not usurp. It is not being suggested here, therefore, that all Christians need to do to practice the politics of God is to establish Christian political parties or organise Christian lobbying groups. This point cannot be emphasised too strongly. The politics of God requires us to reject the politics of man, which sees state intervention as the answer to society's problems. Such an attitude leads to the absolutizing of the state, which is a form of idolatry. On the contrary, the politics of God, the true politics requires us to adhere to the social order revealed in Scripture, a social order in which church and family have roles that are equally as important as that of the state and which may not be usurped by the state. Only as society adheres to this social order will individuals be free to pursue their vocations in life under God. This denunciation of the state as man's saviour was also an aspect of the confession of the early church. According to C.N. Cochrane, the early Christians consistently and rigorously denounced the Greco Roman idea that it is possible to attain a condition of permanent security, peace, and freedom by means of state action. Quote, to the Christians, he says, the state, so far from being the supreme instrument of human emancipation and perfectibility, was a straitjacket to be justified at best as, quote, a remedy for sin, quote. To think of it otherwise, they considered the grossest of superstitions, quote. The idea that society's problems can be solved by means of state intervention is a denial of the true politics, the politics of God, in which Jesus Christ, as Lord over all, governs all aspects of human life by delegating specific functions of his supreme government to a plurality of social institutions that are not reducible to each other, sphere sovereignty. So much for what it does not mean to practice the politics of God. What then does it mean to practice the politics of God? I shall try to answer this question first in a general sense and then in a specific sense, corresponding to the two senses in which I am using the term political. One, first what it does mean for the Christian to practice the politics of God, that is, to live out the political implications of the Christian faith in a general sense as a member of the Christian Church. To practice the politics of God in a general sense means that, as individuals and as a community of faith, we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our sovereign Lord, our King, and His law as absolute and final. There is no court of appeal beyond God's word, God's law, to which men can turn, however such a court of appeal might be conceived, for example as natural law, the law of reason, the common good, or any other notion in which sinful men may think that they can take refuge from the will of God, as this has been revealed in his law. The church has often resorted to such sophistry in an attempt to mitigate what sinful men have sought to construe as the harsh and unrealistic law of God for themselves and their societies. But, The real world is the world that God created, the world that fell into sin and that the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem. All views of reality that deny the biblical doctrines of creation, fall and redemption are the fantasies of sinners. And those who rely on such fantasies will be shipwrecked on the shores of the reality that is God's creation, which manifests not only his divine glory and wisdom, but the moral order of his law as well, Romans one to 18-32. As Christians, we are to live in the constant awareness of this fact. As we do this, and as we seek to conform our lives, families, and societies to God's will, the kingdom of God is realized in our midst and exercises a transforming influence on the world. As we pray and live out the plea to God that his kingdom would come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdoms of this world begin to be transformed by the gospel. In this sense, Christianity as a political religion is all-embracing, all-encompassing, that is, it embraces all of life. We serve a king who claims the whole of our lives. The absolute nature of Christ's kingship means that all aspects and spheres of life are to be subject to his sovereign will, that in the whole of our lives and every facet of our being, as individuals, families, churches, as a community, a society, a nation, we are to glorify God by living in obedience to his will. He claims our marriage, our families, our children, our work life, which is to be pursued for his glory, no matter who our employer is, our economic life, our art, our music, our civil governments. Indeed, the whole cultural life of the nation, and he demands that in all these things we should put his kingdom first, which is a political order, an absolute sovereignty that recognises no area of religious or political neutrality and requires all other religious and political communities to surrender unconditionally to his rule. The ancient Roman state, for all its evil, recognised this fact which so many Christians today deny, and that is why it persecuted the early Christians. The church was primarily a political threat to the political religion of Rome. All of life is political in this sense. That is, not in the sense that Westminster or Brussels should control our lives. That is the politics of man, the religion of modern secular humanism, but in the sense that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and demands that Westminster and Brussels bow the knee to him and acknowledge his political sovereignty over them. Christ did not merely demand that the Christians in Rome cease from worshipping Caesar. He demanded that Caesar should worship him. Nor does he today merely demand of us that we should cease from worshipping the political idols of Westminster and Brussels. He demands that Westminster and Brussels should worship him also. We have not preached the gospel properly, until we have made this fact clear to Westminster and Brussels. Politicians have no special dispensation. Either Caesar, or Westminster, or Brussels is Lord, or Jesus Christ is Lord, and there can be no peace between Christ and Westminster until Westminster bows the knee to Christ. If it refuses, Christ will break it with his rod of iron. Psalm 2.9 Quote, be wise, now therefore, O ye kings; be instructed, ye judges of the earth; serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Quote. Psalm two, ten twelve. We have only one political Lord, Jesus Christ all others are pretenders, usurpers. To be political is to be religious, that is, to acknowledge a god as the ultimate source of authority over the nation. For Rome, that god was Caesar. For Christians, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he commands his people to engage in the ultimate political war, the conquest of the whole earth and its subjugation to his sovereign will. But the means that we are to use in this process are not the means that the world uses in its political conquests. The world seeks to conquer new territory by means of physical and military coercion. The kingdom of God grows by means of the preaching of the gospel, the healing of the sick, the teaching of God's law to the nations, and works of mercy and charity. Nonetheless, the object of this war is the conquest of all nations, as Christ made clear in the Great Commission. In each sphere of life, then, the implications of Christ's political sovereignty must be worked out. One of these areas of life is civil government, what I have called politics in the specific sense. Therefore, we must now ask a second question. 2. What does it mean to practice the politics of God specifically? How can Christians work out the political implications of Christ's lordship in a society that does not acknowledge Christ as Lord. Indeed, that emphatically denies his lordship over the civil government, the state. How do Christians practice the politics of God in a society ruled by the politics of man? First, we must seek to understand what Scripture has to say about this important sphere of life, and it has much to say we must seek to understand what biblical principles are relevant and how these principles apply to human action in the political sphere. In other words, we must develop a comprehensive political theology. If the church is to speak prophetically to the modern world and call it to repentance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, she must understand what is going on at the heart of modern man's insane rebellion against God. Only then will she be able to address the apostasy that has overtaken the Western world and, with God's help, overthrow modern man's chief idol, the godless secular state, which has exalted itself above God and now usurps his authority in virtually every sphere of life. We can be of little use in bringing the influence of the Christian gospel to bear upon the political life of the nation if we do not understand in the first place how the Gospel applies to the political sphere. The Holy Spirit does not use ignorance as a means of enabling Christians to bear effective witness to the Gospel. It is the duty of Christians to understand Scripture so that they can give a credible defence of the faith to those who ask, thereby challenging the disobedience and apostasy of the nation. 1 Peter 3.15 We may not be able to achieve in a few decades, or even in our own lifetime, the transformation of society by means of the Gospel, but we are able to make a start that future generations can build upon. This is impossible, however, if we have never come to a proper understanding of the Christian principles that apply to our lives and society. The Church, therefore, must address the political questions that dominate our society and develop a biblical understanding, a biblical worldview on these issues, and a political theology consistent with that worldview. The Holy Spirit works through the renewing of the mind, not through ignorance. Romans 12.2 Second, we must start living as the kingdom of God. The church should be a prophetic society, an alternative Christian social order that functions across the whole spectrum of human life, and through the witness of this life in words and actions, calls the world to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only as the church incarnates the gospel in her life as a prophetic social order will the Great Commission be fulfilled. This means that we must start applying biblical principles to our own individual lives and to the church as a living community of faith and begin living as a true society, in terms of a Christian worldview in those areas of life in which we do have the freedom and authority to apply biblical norms and standards. And there is a great deal of opportunity for this. Biblical principles of justice may at present be difficult to apply in the secular courts, but they can be applied in our personal relationships, in our family lives, in our church organizations, and in our communities. They can also be applied where churches and Christians are prepared to accept Christian arbitration services that use biblical principles of justice for resolving disputes. This was a practice of the early church that has the specific sanction of Scripture. The Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for going before the pagan courts and for failing to establish competent law courts for settling disputes between believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8 It is necessary for the Church to re-establish such courts today, since the secular courts of the land are now subject to ungodly legislation and justice cannot be expected from them. The functioning of such church courts would also be likely to have an influence beyond the Church, as indeed was the case with the courts of the early Church. According to Augustus Neander, The State allowed to the Church a particular jurisdiction when it recognised in a legal form, what had already obtained in the church before. It was the rule, from the first, in the Christian communities, that disputes between their members should not be brought before heathen tribunals, but settled within their own body. This was befitting the mutual brotherly relations subsisting between Christians, and it had been the course adopted already in the Jewish synagogues. Paul had, in fact, expressly required this method of procedure. When the Episcopal form of church government became matured, it was made part of the function of the Episcopal office to decide these disputes. Yet, hitherto, the sentence of the bishop stood valid only so far as both parties had voluntarily agreed to submit to it. Constantine made the sentence of the bishops legally binding whenever the two parties once agreed to repair to their tribunal so that no further appeal could be made from it. Likewise, Joseph Bingham states that, Besides these, that is, the offices of bishops that were established by divine and canon law, there was one office more imposed upon them by custom and the laws of the state, which was the hearing and determining of secular causes upon the continual applications and addresses that the people made to them. For such was the singular character and repute of bishops, and such the entire confidence men generally reposed in them for their integrity and justice, that they were commonly appealed to as the best arbitrators of men's differences and the most impartial judges of the common disputes that happened among them. And it is to be observed that, though there be no express text in the New Testament that commands bishops to be judges in secular causes, yet St. Austin was of opinion that St. Paul, in prohibiting men to go to law before the unbelievers, did virtually lay this obligation upon them, for he says, once again, that it was the Apostle that instituted ecclesiastical judges and laid the burden of secular causes upon them, by which he means that the Apostle gave a general direction to Christians to choose arbitrators among themselves, and that custom determined this office particularly to the bishops as the best qualified by their wisdom and probity to discharge it, end quote. As a consequence of this, quote, the functions of the city magistrate as the representative and protector of the people passed to the magistrate of the new society, the Christian bishop. While the former had become a mere puppet in the hands of the bureaucracy, the latter was the one independent power in the society of the later empire. While there are today neither biblical, logical, nor practical reasons why this work should be the domain of the clergy, indeed, there are good reasons why it should not be the domain of the clergy, for example, maintenance of sphere sovereignty, the establishment of such courts is a necessary and important part of the Church's work in the modern world. While there are today neither biblical, logical, nor practical reasons why this work should be the domain of the clergy, indeed there are good reasons why it should not be the domain of the clergy, that is, maintenance of sphere sovereignty, the establishment of such courts is a necessary and important part of the Church's work in the modern world. Believers with vocations in the legal and political spheres of life should take this task seriously, since it will provide a valuable service to the church and a potent witness to the world. It would also enable the church to start working out the practical details of how biblical principles of public justice should apply in the modern world. This in itself is an important aspect of practicing the politics of God. Christian political principles must also be taught to future generations, which will, if we act now by providing our children with a Christian education, will be in a position in the future to apply these principles more effectively to a wider sphere of life than we can. Provision of an education in terms of the Christian worldview is a fundamental responsibility of the family and essential in our great commission to disciple the nation's Education is the high ground in our battle with secular humanism. It is through the education system that secular humanists have been able to take control of what was once a Christian society. We must now wake up to this fact and act appropriately. We must establish a counter-revolution in education that does not rely on the secular state education system. It will also be necessary to create an alternative Christian welfare system that can operate according to biblical worth ethics. Strengthening the family so that it can fulfil its biblical role in society is an important part of this, but not the whole of it. An alternative medical system will also have to be created eventually. The modern healthcare system in Britain is not Christian. It is part of the apostate politics of man. The church is commanded not only to preach the gospel, but to heal the sick as well. The purpose of these endeavours is not merely to provide for the Church's own members, but also to provide these services as an essential aspect of the Church's mission to the world, so that, as the Christian social order grows, it will displace and eventually replace the secular humanist social order that now dominates Western society. As the secular social order collapses, as it inevitably will and is doing already, the nation must be able to see the Christian faith as the only real answer to man's personal crisis and the Christian social order as the only answer to man's social crisis. Just as the Roman emperors eventually realised that Christianity was the only real alternative to the collapse of Rome, so too our rulers and people must come to realise that only in Christ can man find salvation and that the Christian social order is the only answer to the disintegration of our society. By pursuing all these things, we shall create an alternative religious and political society, a Christian counter-revolutionary social order, which, with God's help, will gradually grow and supplant the godless culture of secular humanism that now dominates our lives and society. Third, we must, wherever possible, seek to influence the political process by means of the consistent application of Christian political norms. It would seem that there is little scope for this at the present time. Nevertheless, we must not shrink back from the attempt to influence the political process. Constitutionally, if not in practice, Britain is still a Christian nation, and Christian principles can be invoked. However, we must be careful here. What we must not do under any circumstances is to fall into the error of thinking that state intervention, on its own, will create a Christian society. It will not. As we have seen, the attempt to solve all of man's social problems by means of government intervention is the definitive feature of the politics of man in the modern age of apostate secular humanism. The politics of God is based on completely different principles. In the politics of man... Society looks to the state as a political idol, as a source of the good. In the politics of God, society is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of the good, and the answer to man's social problems is to be sought in obedience to this social order that he has revealed in his word. This means that the state must observe its God-ordained boundaries, and that the other institutions that God has established for the government and well-being of the individual and society, church and family, must fulfil their God given roles in accordance with His Word. This is the only way to achieve social harmony, justice, and peace. It will not be possible for Christians to exert the kind of influence necessary to take captive the political institutions of the nation, that is, the state, for Christ, without first creating a counter revolutionary Christian social order with its own education, welfare, healthcare and justice, arbitration, systems that has already begun to supplant significantly the godless culture of secular humanism that now dominates society. A Christian agenda for political action must, therefore, recognise the importance of the other institutions that God has established for the godly government of society, church and family, and it must aim at empowering these institutions so that they can function according to their God-given rules. The good ordering of society, the Christian ordering of society, requires this. When these institutions once again begin to function properly according to their divinely appointed rules, much of the current burden of the state can be transferred to them, thereby enabling the state to pursue its God-given role as a ministry of public justice more obediently. None of this is possible, however, unless Christians are prepared and willing to make the sacrifices necessary to establish local communities that enshrine and embody these ideals and practices in their daily life. In other words, unless they are prepared to establish communities of faith that function as real societies with their own distinctive social order. Only in this way can the body of Christ express its existence in history as a concrete reality capable of transforming the world, that is to say, Only by living as a true society with its own distinctive social order can the body of Christ truly manifest the kingdom of God on earth. Section 5. Conclusion Christianity is a political faith, both in a general sense in that it recognises that Jesus Christ is Lord and teaches that all power and authority in heaven and on earth and therefore all government of men and nations is given to him alone and in a specific sense in that it teaches that the civil government or state is commanded to recognize the rights of God and order its work according to the light of his word as his servant Romans thirteen one 6 Apostate politics the politics of man is a form of idolatry as Christians we must face this idolatry head on and oppose on every level and in every detail, the politics of man with the politics of God. We cannot avoid the inevitable conflict that exists between the politics of God and the politics of man without abandoning our great commission to disciple the nations. Christians must stop running away from Goliath and take the political nature of the Christian faith seriously, as did the early church. If the Church does not pose a political threat to the secular humanist state, it is because she has already bowed the knee to Caesar. Unfortunately, this is the situation today in Britain. The modern secular state is the chief idol of our age. If we fail to challenge this idolatry, we fail in our great commission to bring the nations under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to challenge the politics of man the politics of apostasy and sin, is with the politics of God. In order to do this, we need first to develop a comprehensive political theology that recognizes the rights of God as sovereign Lord over the whole spectrum of human existence. Second, we must create and maintain a counter-revolutionary Christian social order based on this political theology. While we are not able to control Westminster and Brussels, we are able if we are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices, to begin creating a true covenant society, an alternative Christian social order with its own education system, its own welfare system, its own health system, and its own justice system, in other words, a state within a state. The influence of such a Christian social order would extend far wider than the Christian church. Being dependent upon the godless secular state for these things is not an obedient alternative and is a servile condition that the Bible rebukes. Exodus 23.2, 34.12, 1 Corinthians 6.1-8, 2 Corinthians 6.14-15. Third, we must seek to conquer the political institutions of the nation for Christ by the influence we exert upon society. Only where the first two of these goals have been achieved significantly shall we be able to accomplish the third None of this is possible, however, without the manifestation of the body of Christ on earth as a true covenant society, functioning across the full spectrum of human life. That is, without the church functioning as the true social order, thereby manifesting the kingdom of God on earth. Nothing of what has been put forward here is unrealistic or fanciful. It is what actually happened in the first three centuries of the Christian era, the Church of the Imperial Age, said Christopher Dawson, quote, was, to a great extent, an alternative and a substitute for the communal life of the city-state, End quote. Ethelbert Stauffer tells us that the early church was the training ground of a new conception of the state for which she should have received praise from the state but instead was constantly accused of being the enemy of the state, quote, but among all the senseless political accusations levelled against Christians, there was one charge which the first Christians took upon themselves, and which they had to take because it accorded with the facts. The first Christians rejected any attempt to deify the state, and quote. Quote, Christianity, wrote C. N. Cochrane, subverted the central idea of creative politics as this had been pursued throughout classical antiquity. End quote. That is the idea of the polis, the state as man's saviour, indeed as man's god. In other words, what defines him and gives meaning to his life? In his book, Caesars and Saints, The Evolution of the Christian State, 180-313 AD, Stuart Perone said that Christianity possessed three supreme advantages over its religious competitors in the ancient world. Christianity's first advantage, according to Perone, was its Jewish origin. Christians were, quote, the heirs of by far the most sublime religious philosophy that had yet appeared. And not only philosophy, the Ten Commandments were unique. There is nothing like them in any of the competing religions. Far from it. The religions of Asia Minor and of Egypt, like certain of their Syrian competitors, not only countenanced but encouraged sexual excesses. Judaism was wholly different. Its moral code was strict, implacable and permanent. Christianity took it over in its entirety. That was its first advantage. The second advantage was that, whereas no one has ever seen Isis or Atargetus or Mithras or the rest, thousands had seen and known Jesus of Nazareth. He had lived in one of the most crowded regions of the whole empire. He was always on the move. He was famous. Men and women remembered his words, recited his deeds, it was possible for his first disciples to appeal to the memory of their auditors. And they did, quote. But it is the third advantage mentioned by Perón that particularly concerns us here. This third advantage that Christianity possessed over its competitors, said Perón, is one which has never been explained. Its organization, from the very beginning, from the days of Peter and Paul, it had been governed by an efficient and adaptable system. Its first martyr, Stephen, was a member of the administrative branch. No other faith had anything remotely resembling this organisation. Nothing approaching the administrative unity of the Catholic Church had ever existed before, except in the Roman state. That was the problem. It was not a religious one at all. It was political. These Christians, this organised international society, was it to be the rival or the ally of the state? The Christian faith created a new society, an alternative social order that supplanted the society of late classical antiquity, and the latter collapsed. The vital centre of the society of the future, says Christopher Dawson, was to be found not in the city-state, but in the Christian ecclesia. Describing the persecution of Christians under the Emperor Valerian in the 3rd century, Prome goes on to say, Once again, it was the Christian society, not the Christian faith, which was prescribed as illicit. The persecution was, as usual, based on political and economic, not religious or theological grounds. Likewise, speaking of the transition from the late classical to the early medieval world, Dawson said that Christianity was not abandoned passively to the influences of of its social environment. It had its own principle of order, its own social organs, and its own civic traditions. Christianity was not merely a doctrine and a life. It was, above all, a society. And it was the organic unity and continuity of the Christian society which preserved the spiritual identity of the Christian religion. Quote. The cultural mission of the church created the spiritual and social foundations upon which... Western civilization was built. Quote, During the long apprenticeship of the nations which followed the collapse of the Roman Empire whilst the intellect of the lay community slumbered, the church assumed, almost unaided the intellectual and moral leadership of civilization. End quote. This is how the church exerted her influence upon and began converting the nations. It is our calling to continue that mission in our own lifetime and to prepare our children to continue the same mission in their lifetimes? Just as the decisive issue that faced the early church was the battle between Christ and Caesar, with the emperor as the embodiment and representative of the ideal of the state espoused by classical antiquity, that is, the biblical Antichrist, so too the decisive issue facing the modern church in the West is the battle between Christ and the apostate secular state. The modern Antichrist... Until the church recognises this conflict and begins acting in terms of it, she will continue to decline and the state will continue to exercise dominion over her. If she is to conquer her enemies and fulfil her great commission once more, she must proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is ruler, not the secular state. Victory will not come instantly and it will not come at all without a great deal of sacrifice and tribulation. But this is the mission to which we are called. We must pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is ripe for a change of politics in Western society. The question is simply this. Is the Church, the body of Christ on earth, prepared to make the sacrifices necessary to challenge the politics of man and replace it with the politics of God? God does not grant religious neutrality to the state, The state must kiss the sun or perish by the way. Psalm 2.12 Christianity is the true politics. The church must start living out this truth with every breath that she takes. And this means that Christians must once again constitute themselves an imperium in imperio, a state within a state, a kingdom that will transform the world by bringing all things into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only when she does will the world be delivered from the tyranny and idolatry of the politics of man. Excursus, the grammar of the Great Commission It is a common misconception that the Great Commission is a command to make disciples of individuals from among or out of all the nations, that is, to engage in personal evangelism or, quote, soul-saving, end quote. It is not. Strictly speaking, the English language has no verb to disciple. The nearest the Oxford English Dictionary comes to such a verb is to discipline. Consequently, Tyndale, the Geneva Bible, and the Authorised Version translate the first part of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen 19 as, quote, Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, end quote, Which preserves the grammar of the Greek original by using a transitive verb, teach, with the phrase all the nations as the direct object of this verb. However, the Revised Version's translation of Matthew 28:19 reads, "Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations." There are two problems with this modern translation. First, it turns the Greek verb to disciple, into the English verb to make, and the direct object of this verb becomes the English noun disciples instead of nations. Second, it turns the direct object of the Greek verb into a genitive. That is, it turns the word nations, which in the Greek is in the accusative case, the case of the direct object, into a genitive case governed by the preposition of which is not in the Greek. This gives us an English phrase that is ambiguous in the place of a Greek phrase that is not ambiguous. Most modern translations have followed the revised version. The revised version's translation can be taken and has been taken to mean, Go therefore and make disciples of people from among all the nations. In other words, It has been taken as a command to make individual disciples from among the nations, not a command to make the nations the disciples of Christ, which is precisely what the Greek text says. This erroneous interpretation of a badly translated phrase has, unfortunately, now become almost ubiquitous. But Matthew 28.19 does not say, Go therefore and make disciples, of people from all nations, end quote, it says, quote, go and disciple the nations, end quote, that is, quote, go and make all nations my disciples, end quote, aorist active imperative of mathetevo, which is usually translated as, quote, make disciples of, means be a disciple. The transitive use of the verb is not found in classical Greek. In the Koine Greek of the New Testament, however, it is used transitively to mean make a disciple of, taking as its direct object in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, panta te etni quote, all the nations end quote. The Great Commission is not a command to evangelize individuals, therefore, though of course it is impossible to fulfil the Great Commission without making individual disciples, but Rather, a command, one, to disciple and, two, to baptize the nations, which means, of course, that they must be evangelized and brought to faith in Christ, and, three, to teach them, that is, the nations, to obey God's commandments. The object of the Great Commission is not the making of individual Christians, but the making of Christian nations, and this understanding of the Great Commission is confirmed by the New Testament itself elsewhere. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. Revelation 11.15, Matthew 28.18-20, and Revelation 11.15, compare 21.24-26, constitute, therefore, the Alpha and Omega
1: and his kingdom.